Chapter Thirteen of the Life of Thomas Lord Cochrane, Tenth Earl of Dundonald, completing the autobiography of a seaman, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Eighteen twenty to eighteen twenty-five. While Lord Cochrane was rendering efficient service to the cause of freedom in South America, another war of independence was being waged in Europe and he had hardly been at home a week before solicitations pressed upon him from all quarters that he should lend his great name and great abilities to this war also as he consented to do so and almost from the moment of his arrival was intimately connected with the greek revolution the previous stages of this memorable episode the incidents that occurred during his absence in chile and brazil need to be here reviewed and recapitulated the greek revolution began openly in eighteen twenty one but there had been long previous forebodings of it the dwellers in the land once peopled by the noble race which planned and perfected the arts and graces the true refinements and the solid virtues that are the basis of our modern civilization had been for four centuries and more the slaves of the turks they were hardly greeks if by that name is implied descent from the inhabitants of classical greece with the old stock had been blended from generation to generation so many foreign elements that nearly all trace of the original blood had disappeared and the modern greeks had nothing but their residence and their language to justify them in maintaining the old title but their slavery was only too real oppressed by the ottomans on account of their race and religion the oppression was none the less in that it induced many of them to cast off the last shreds of freedom and deck themselves in the coarser but to slavish minds the pleasanter bondage of trickery and meanness during the eighteenth century many greeks rose to eminence in the turkish service and proved harder taskmasters to their brethren than the Turks themselves generally were. The hope of further aggrandizement, however, led them to scheme the overthrow of their Ottoman employers, and their projects were greatly aided by the truer, albeit short-sighted patriotism, that animated the greater number of their kinsmen. They groaned under Turkish thraldom, and yearned to be freed from it, in the temper so well described and so worthily denounced by Lord Byron in 1811. Quote, and many dream withal the hour is nigh that gives them back their father's heritage for foreign arms and aid they loudly sigh nor solely dare encounter hostile rage hereditary bondsmen know ye not who would free themselves must strike the blow by their right arm the conquest must be wrought will gaul or muscovite redress ye no true they may lay your proud despoilers low but not for you will freedom's altars flame the greeks all but a few genuine patriots thought otherwise they sought deliverance at the hands of gauls and muscovites and as the muscovites had good reason for desiring the overthrow of turkey they listened to their prayers and other ties than that of community and religion bound the persecuted greeks to russia the philiki hatara or friendly society chief representative of a very general movement was founded at odessa in eighteen fourteen it was a secret society which speedily had ramifications among the greek christians in every part of turkey encouraging them to prepare for insurrection as soon as the tsar alexander i deemed it expedient to aid them by open invasion of turkey or as soon as they themselves could take the initiative trusting to russia to complete the work of the revolution the friendly society increased its influence and multiplied its visionary schemes during many years previous to eighteen twenty one its strength was augmented by the political condition of turkey at the time 
the sultan mahmud a true type of the ottoman sovereign at his worst had attempted to perfect his power by a long train of cruelties of which murder was the lightest defeating his own purpose thereby he aroused the opposition of mahometan as well as christian subjects and induced the rebellious schemes of ali pasha of joannina the boldest of his vassals in albania ali ruled with a cruelty that was hardly inferior to mahmud's byron tells us how his quote, dread command in lawless land for with a bloody hand he sways a nation turbulent and bold End quote. the cruelty could be tolerated but not opposition to mahmud's will long and growing jealousy existed between the sultan and his tributary at length in eighteen twenty there was an open rupture ali was denounced as a traitor and ordered to surrender his pashalik instead of doing so he organized his army for prompt rebellion trusting for success partly to the support of the greeks most of the greeks held aloof but the suliots a race of christian marauders the fiercest of the fierce community of albanians sided with him and for more than a year rendered him valuable aid by reason of their hereditary skill in lawless warfare not till january eighteen twenty two was ali forced to surrender and then only perhaps through the defection of the suliots the suliots dissatisfied with ali's recompense for their services had gone over to the greeks who not caring to serve under ali in his rebellion had welcomed that rebellion as a heaven-sent opportunity for realising their long-cherished hopes the turkish garrisons in greece being half unmanned in order that the strongest possible force might be used in subduing ali and the turkish government in the peninsula being at a standstill the greeks found themselves in an excellent position for asserting their freedom had they been less degraded than they were by their long centuries of slavery or had there been some better organization than that which the purposes and the methods of the friendly society afforded for developing the latent patriotism which was honest and widespread they might have achieved a triumph worthy of the classic name they bore and the heroic ancestry that they claimed unfortunately the friendly society already degenerated from the unworthy aim with which it started now an elaborate machinery of personal ambition private greed and local spite the willing tool of russia was master of the situation the mastery however was by no means thorough the society had dispossessed all other organizations but had no organization of its own adequate to the working out of a successful rebellion its machinery was tolerably perfect but efficient motive power was wanting its exchequer was empty its councils were divided above all it had alienated the sympathies of the worthiest patriots of greece finding itself suddenly in the way of triumph it was incapable of rightly progressing in that way obstacles of its own raising and obstacles raised by others stood in the path and only a very wise man had the chance of successfully removing them the wise man did not exist or was not to be obtained perhaps the wisest though as latter history proved not very wise was count john cappadistrius a native of corfu born in seventeen seventy seven he had gone to italy to study and practise medicine there also he studied afterwards to put in practice the effete machiavellianism then in vogue in eighteen o three he entered political life as secretary to the lately founded republic of the ionian islands napoleon's annexation of the ionian islands in eighteen o seven drove him into the service of russia and as russian agent he advocated at the vienna conference of eighteen fifteen the reconstruction of the ionian republic the partial concession of great britain towards that project by which the ionian islands were established as a sort of commonwealth dependent upon england enabled him to live and work in corfu awaiting the realization of his own patriotic schemes and watching the patriotic movements in greece italian in his education and russian in his sympathies he was still an honest greek worthier and abler 
than most other influential Greeks. Quote, he had many virtues and great abilities, says a competent critic. His conduct was firm and disinterested, his manners simple and dignified, his personal feelings were warm, and as a consequence of this virtue they were sometimes so strong as to warp his judgment. He wanted the equanimity and impartiality of mind and the elevation of soul necessary to make a great man. End quote. In spite of his defects, he might have done good service to the Greek Revolution had he accepted the offer of its leadership, shrewdly tendered to him by the friendly society, but this he declined, having no liking for the society and no trust in its methods and designs. The friendly society then sought and found a leader far inferior to Count Capodistrius, in Prince Alexander Hypsilantes, the son of a hospodar of Wallachia, who had been deposed in 1806. Hypsilantes had been educated in Russia, and had there risen to some rank high enough at any rate to quicken his ambition and vanity, both as a soldier and as a courtier. He was not without virtues, but he was utterly unfit for the duties imposed upon him as leader of the Greek Revolution. Not a Greek himself, his purpose in accepting the office seems to have been to make Greece an appendage of the despotic monarchy, which, by means of the political crisis, he hoped to establish in Wallachia under Russian protection. With that in view, in March 1821, he led the first crude army of Greek and other Christian rebels into Moldavia. There, and in Wallachia, he stirred up a brief revolt, attended by military blunders and lawless atrocities, which soon brought vengeance upon himself and made a false beginning of the revolutionary work. Moldavia and Wallachia were quickly restored to Turkish rule, and Hypsilantes had, in June, to fly for safety into Austria. But the bad example that he set and the evil influence that he and his promoters and followers in the friendly society exerted initiated a false policy and encouraged a pernicious course of action by which the cause of the Greeks was injured for years. The real Greek revolution began in Maria. There the friendly society did good work in showing the people that the hour for action had come, but its direction of that action was for the most part mischievous. The worst Greeks were the leaders and under their guidance the play of evil passions, inevitable in all efforts of the oppressed to overturn their oppressors, was developed to a grievous extent. Turkish blood was first shed on the 25th of March, 1821, and within a week the whole of Maria was in a ferment of rebellion. On the 22nd of April, which was Easter Sunday, it was reckoned that from ten to 15,000 Mohammedans had been slaughtered in cold blood, and about 3,000 Turkish homes destroyed. The promoters of all that wanton atrocity were the directors of the Friendly Society, among whom the Archimandrate Gregorius de Chaos, nicknamed Papa Felsias, and Petros Mavromicheles, or Petro Bay, were the most conspicuous. Its principal agents were the Clef or Brigand chieftains, best represented by Theodore Colocotrones. Born about 1770 of a family devoted to the use of arms in predatory ways, Colocotrones had led a lawless life until 1806, when the Greek peasantry called in the assistance of their Turkish rulers in hunting down their persecutors of their own race, and when, several of his family being slain, he himself had to seek refuge in Zanti. There he maintained himself partly by piracy, partly by cattle dealing. In 1810, the English annexation of the Ionian Islands led to his employment first as captain and afterwards as major in the Greek contingent of the British army. He had amassed much wealth and was in the prime of life when, in January 1821, he returned to his early home to revive his old brigand life under the name of legitimate warfare. His thorough knowledge of the country, its passes and its strongholds, and his familiarity with the modes of fighting proper to them, his handsome person and agreeable deportment, his shrewd wit and persuasive oratory, 
made him one of the most influential agents of the revolution at its commencement, and his influence grew during the ensuing years. The flame of rebellion, having spread through the Maria during the early weeks of April, extended rapidly over the adjoining districts of the mainland. By the end of June, the insurgents were masters of nearly all the country now possessed by modern Greece. Their cause was heartily espoused by the Soliots of Albania and other fellow Christians in various Turkish provinces, and their kinsmen of the outlying islands were eager to join in the work of national regeneration and to contribute largely to the completion of that work by their naval prowess. It was naval prowess, as our later pages will abundantly show, of a very barbarous and undeveloped sort. Besides the two principal seaports on the mainland, Tricheri on Mount Pelion, and Galaxidi on the Gulf of Corinth, there were famous colonies of Greek seamen in the islands of Sara and Kassos, and similar colonies of Albanians in Hydra and Spetsas. These and the other islands had long practised irregular commerce, and protected that commerce by irregular fighting with the Turks. At the first sound of revolution, they threw in their lot with the insurgents of the mainland, and thus a nondescript navy of some 400 brigs and schooners, of from 60 to 400 tons burthen, and manned by about 12,000 sailors, adepts alike in trade and piracy, but very unskilled in orderly warfare, and very feebly inspired by anything like disinterested patriotism, was ready to use and abuse its powers during the ensuing seven years' fight for Greek independence. During the summer of 1821, while the continental Greeks were rushing to arms, murdering the Turkish residents among them by thousands, and thus bringing down upon themselves or upon those of their own race who, as peasants and burghers, took no important share in actual fighting, the murderous vengeance of the Turkish troops sent to attempt the suppression of the revolt, these sailors were pursuing an easier and more profitable game. The Turkish ports were not warlike, and the Turkish trading ships were not prepared for fighting. In May, a formidable crowd of vessels left the islands on a cruise, from which they soon returned with an immense store of booty. Early in June, the best Turkish fleet that could be brought together, consisting of two line of battleships, three frigates and three sloops, were now to harass, if not destroy, the army of smaller enemies. Giacomaki Tombazes, with 37 of these smaller enemies, set off to meet them, and falling in with one of the ships gave her chase, till, in the roads of Eripos, she was attacked on the 8th of June, and with the help of a fireship, destroyed, with a loss of nearly 400 men. That victory caused the flight of the other Turkish vessels, and was the beginning of much cruel work at sea and with ships which, not often daring to meet in open fight, wrought terrible mischief to unprotected ports and islands. The mischief wrought upon the land was yet more terrible. A seething tide of Greek and Muslim blood heaved to and fro as, during the second half of 1821, each party in turn gained temporary ascendancy in one district after another. Greeks murdered Turks, and Turks murdered Greek, with equal ferocity, or perhaps the ferocity of the Greeks, stirred by bad leaders to revenge themselves for all their previous sufferings, even surpassed that of the Turks. Of their cruelty a glaring instance occurred in their capture of Navarino. The Turkish inhabitants, having held out as long as a mouthful of food was left in the town, were forced to capitulate on the 19th of August. It was promised that, upon their surrendering, the Greek vessels were to convey them, their wearing apparel and their household furniture, either to Egypt or to Tunis. No sooner were the gates opened than a wholesale plunder and slaughter ensued. A Greek ecclesiastic described the scene, quote, "'Women wounded with musket-balls and sabre-cuts rushed to the sea seeking to escape, and were deliberately shot. Mothers robbed of their clothes, with infants in their arms, plunged into the water to conceal themselves from shame,' 
and they were made a mark for inhuman riflemen. Greeks seized infants from their mother's breasts and dashed them against the rocks. Children three and four years old were hurled living into the sea and left to drown. When the massacre was ended, the dead bodies washed ashore or piled on the beach, threatened to cause a pestilence. At the sack of Tripolitza, on the 8th of October, about 8,000 Moslems were murdered, the last 2,000 chiefly women and children, being taken into a neighbouring ravine, there to be slaughtered at leisure. Two years later, a ghastly heap of bones attested the inhuman deed. In ways like these, the first stage of the Greek Revolution was achieved. Before the close of 1821, it appeared to the Greeks themselves, to their Muslim enemies, and to their many friends in England, France, and other countries, that the triumph was complete. Unfortunately, the same bad motives and the same bad methods that had so grievously polluted the torrent of patriotism continued to poison and disturb the stream which might otherwise have been henceforth clear, steady, and health-giving. Greece was free, but unless another and much harder revolution could be effected in the temper and conduct of its own people, unfit to put its freedom to good use or even to maintain it. The rapid success of the Greeks during the first few weeks of the revolution, says their ablest historian, through the management of much civil and financial business into the hands of the proesti and the demigerents in office. The primates, who already exercised great official authority, instantly appropriated that which had been hitherto exercised by murdered voivodes and bays. Every primate strove to make himself a little independent potentate, and every captain of a district assumed the powers of a commander-in-chief. The revolution before six months had passed seemed to have peopled Greece with a host of little Ali Pashas, when the primate and the captain acted in concert, they collected the public revenues, administered the Turkish property, which was declared national, enrolled, paid, and provisioned as many troops as circumstances required, or as they thought fit, named officers, formed a local guard for the primate of the best soldiers in the place, who were thus often withdrawn from the public service, and organized a local police and a local treasury. This system of local self-government constituted in a very self-willed manner and relieved from almost all responsibility, was soon established as a natural result of the revolution over all Greece. The sultan's authority having ceased, every primate assumed the prerogatives of the sultan. For a few weeks this state of things was unavoidable, and to an able and honest chief of government it would have facilitated the establishment of a strong central authority, but by the vices of Greek society it was perpetuated into an organised anarchy. No improvement was made in financial arrangements or in the system of taxation, no measures were adopted for rendering property more secure. No attempt was made to create an equitable administration of justice. No courts of law were established, and no financial accounts were published. Governments were formed, constitutions were drawn up, national assemblies met, orators debated, and laws were passed according to the political fashion patronised by the liberals of the day, but no effort was made to prevent the government being virtually absolute, unless it was by rendering it absolutely powerless. The constitutions were framed to remain a dead letter, the national assemblies were nothing but conferences of parties, and the laws passed were intended to fascinate Western Europe, not operate with effect in Greece. The supreme government of Greece had been assumed in June by Prince Demetrius Hypsilantes, a worthier man than his brother, Alexander, but by no means equal to the task he took in hand. At first the brigand chiefs and local potentates, not willing to surrender any of the power they had acquired, were disposed to render to him nominal submission, believing that his name and Russian influence would be serviceable to the cause of Greece. But Hypsilanti showed himself utterly incompetent, and it was soon apparent that his sympathies were wholly alien to those both of the Greek people and of their military and civil leaders. 
therefore another master had to be chosen. Colocotrones might have succeeded to the dignity, and he certainly had vigour enough of disposition and enough honesty and dishonesty combined to make the position one of power as well as of dignity. For that very reason, however, his comrades and rivals were unwilling to place him in it. They desired a president skilful enough to hold the reins of government with a very loose hand, yet so as to keep them from getting hopelessly entangled, one who should be a smart secretary and adviser without assuming the functions of a director. Such a man they found in Prince Alexander Mavrokordatos, then about thirty-two years old. He was a kinsman of a hospodar of Wallachia, by whom he had in his youth been employed in political matters. After that he had resided in France, where he acquired much fresh knowledge, and where his popularity helped to quicken sympathy on behalf of the Greek Revolution at its first outburst. He had lately come to Missolonghi with a shipload of ammunition and other material, procured and bought at his own expense, and soon attained considerable influence. Always courteous in his manners, only ungenerous in his actions, where the interests of others came into collision with his own, less strong-willed and less ambitious than most of his associates, those associates were hardly jealous of his popularity at home, and wholly pleased with his popularity among foreigners. It was a clear gain to their cause to have Shelley writing his Helias, and dedicating the poem to Mavrocodatos as a token of admiration, sympathy, and friendship. Mavrocodatos was named President of Greece in the Constitution of Epidaurus, chiefly his own workmanship, which was proclaimed on the 13th of January, New Year's Day, according to the reckoning of the Greek Church, 1822. It is not necessary here to detail his own acts or those of his real or professing subordinates. All we have to do is furnish a general account and a few characteristic illustrations of the course of events during the Greek Revolution, in explanation of the state of parties and of politics at the time of Lord Cochrane's advent among them. These events were marked by continuance of the same selfish policy, divided interests, class prejudice, and individual jealousy that have already been referred to. The mass of the Greek people were, as they had been from the first, zealous in their desire for freedom, and having won it, they were not unwilling to use it honestly. For their faults their leaders are chiefly to be blamed, and in apology for those leaders it must be remembered that they were an assemblage of soldiers who had been schooled in oriental brigandage of priests whose education had been in a corrupt form of christianity made more corrupt by persecution of merchants who had found it hard to trade without trickery and of seamen who had been taught to regard piracy as an honourable vocation perhaps we have less cause to condemn them for the errors and vices that they exhibited during their fight for freedom than to wonder that those errors and vices were not more reprehensible in themselves and disastrous in their issues for about six years the fight was maintained without foreign aid, save that given by private volunteers and generous champions in Western Europe against a state numerically nearly twenty times as strong as the little community of revolutionists. In it, along with much wanton cruelty, was displayed much excellent heroism. But the heroism was reckless and undisciplined, and therefore often worse than useless. Memorable instances, both of recklessness and want of discipline, appeared in the attempts made to wrest Chios from the Turks, in 1822. The Greek inhabitants of the island, on whom the Turkish yoke pressed lightly, had refused to join in the insurgent movement of their brethren on the mainland and in the neighbouring islands, but it was considered that a little coercion would induce them to share in the revolution and convert their prosperous island into a Greek possession. Therefore, in March, a small force of 2,500 men crossed the archipelago, took possession of Kutari, the principal town, and proceeded to invest the Turkish citadel. The Chiots, though perhaps not very willingly, took part in the enterprise, but the invading party was quite unequal to the work it had undertaken. 
in april a formidable turkish squadron arrived and by it chios was easily recovered to become the scene of vindictive atrocities which brought all the terrified inhabitants who were not slaughtered or who could not escape into abject submission thereupon on the tenth of may a greek fleet of fifty-six vessels was dispatched by mavrocordatos to attempt a more thorough capture of the island its commander was andreas Mialis, a hydriot merchant who proved himself the best sea captain among the greeks had Mialaus been able as he wished to start sooner and meet the turkish squadron on its way to chios a brilliant victory might have resulted instead of one of the saddest catastrophes of the whole greek war being deterred therefrom by the vacillation of mavrocordatos and the insubordination of his captains and their crews he was only able to reach the island when it was again in the hands of the enemy and when all was ready for withstanding him there was useless fighting on the thirty first of may and the two following days on the eighteenth of june Mialaus made another attack but he was only able to destroy the turkish flagship and nearly all on board by means of a fire vessel his fleet was unmanageable and he had to abandon the enterprise and to leave the unfortunate chiots to endure further punishment for offences that were not their own this punishment was so terrible that in six months the population of chios was reduced from one hundred thousand to thirty thousand twenty thousand managed to escape fifty thousand were either put to death or sold as slaves in asia minor that failure of the greeks at chios rapidly followed by their defeat on land at peta greatly disheartened the revolutionists mavrocordatus virtually resigned his presidentship and there was anarchy in greece until eighteen twenty eight athens captured from the turks in june eighteen twenty two became the centre of jealous rivalry and visionary scheming mismanagement and government that was worse than no government at all odysseus the vilest of the vile men whom the revolution brought to the surface was its master for some time and when he played traitor to the turks he was succeeded by others highly better than himself in spite of some heavy disasters however the greeks were so far successful during eighteen twenty two that in eighteen twenty three they were able to hold their newly acquired territory and to wrest some more fortresses from their enemies the real heroism that they had displayed moreover the foul cruelties of which they were guilty and the selfish courses which they pursued being hardly reported to their friends and when reported hardly believed awakened keen sympathy on their behalf shelley and byron and many others of less note had sung their virtues and their sufferings in noble verse and enlarged upon them in eloquent prose and in england and france in switzerland germany and the united states a strong party of philhellenes was organized to collect money and to send recruits for their assistance the two philhellenes of greatest note who served in greece during the earlier years of the revolution were thomas gordon and frank abney hastings gordon who attained the rank of general in the army of independence had the advantage of a long previous and thorough acquaintance with the character of both turks and greeks and with the languages that they spoke he watched all the revolutionary movements from the beginning and took part in many of them in the history of the greek revolution which he published in eighteen thirty two he gave such a vivid and in the main so accurate an account of them that his narrative has formed the basis of the more ambitious work of the native historian mr Tricupis, of the vices and errors of the people on whose behalf he fought and wrote he spoke boldly quote, whatever national or individual wrong the greeks may have endured he said in one place it is impossible to justify the ferocity of their vengeance or to deny that a comparison instituted between them and the ottoman generals mehmet abulabad omer veroni and the Cahir bey of kershid would give to the latter the palm of humanity humanity however is quite a word out of place when applied either to them or to their opponents 
In another page, further denouncing the Greek leaders, he wrote, quote, Penarius was the worst of these local despots, whom some writers have elevated into heroes. He was, in fact, an ignoble robber, hardened in evil. He enriched himself with the spoils of the Mohammedans, yet he and his retinue of brigands compelled the people to maintain them, at free quarters, in idleness and luxury, exacting not only bread, meat, wine, and forage, but also sugar and coffee. Hence springs the reflection that the Greeks had cause to repent their early predilection for the clefts, who were almost all, beginning with Calcatrones, infamous for the sordid perversity of their dispositions. Gordon's disinterested and brave efforts to bring about a better state of things, and to help on the cause of real patriotism in Greece, were highly praiseworthy, but as another historian has truly said, quote, he did not possess the activity and decision of character necessary to obtain commanding influence in council, or to initiate daring measures in the field. End quote. Frank Abney Hastings was an abler man. Born in 1794, he was started in the naval profession when only 11 years old. Six months after the commencement of his midshipman's life, he was present on board the Neptune at the Battle of Trafalgar, and during the ensuing 14 years he had served in nearly every quarter of the globe. His independent spirit, however, something akin to Lord Cochrane's, brought him into disfavour, and in 1819, for challenging a superior officer who had insulted him, he was dismissed from the British Navy. Disheartened and disgusted, he resided in France for about three years. At length he resolved to go and fight for the Greeks, partly out of sympathy for their cause, partly as a relief from the misery of forced idleness, partly with the view of developing a plan, which he had been devising, for extending the use of steamships in naval warfare, to which last excellent improvement he greatly contributed. He arrived at Hydra in April 1822, just in time to take part in the fighting off Chios. One of his ingenious suggestions, made to Andreas Miolus, and its reception had been described by himself. Quote, I propose to direct a fire-ship and three other vessels upon the frigate, and when near the enemy, to set fire to certain combustibles which should throw out a great flame. The enemy would naturally conclude they were all fire-ships. The vessels were then to attach themselves to the frigate, fire broadsides double-shotted, throwing on board the enemy at the same time combustible balls, which gave a great smoke without flame. This would doubtless induce him to believe he was on fire, and give a most favourable opportunity for boarding him. However, the Admiral returned my plan, saying only, Cayo, without asking a single question or wishing me to explain its details, and I observed a kind of insolent contempt in his manner. This interview with the Admiral disgusted me, they place you in a position in which it is impossible to render any service, and then they boast of their own superiority, and of the uselessness of the Franks, as they call us, in Turkish warfare. Mialis, however, soon gained wisdom and made good use of Captain Hastings, who spent more than £7,000, all his patrimony, in serving the Greeks. He was almost the only officer in their employ who, during the earlier years of the revolution, succeeded in establishing any sort of discipline or good management. Lord Byron, the most illustrious of the early Philhellenes, used to say shortly before his death that with Napier at the head of the army and Hastings in command of a fleet, the triumph of Greece might be ensured. Byron was then at Missolonghi, whither he had gone in January 1824, to die in April. Long before, while stirring up sympathy for all the lovers of liberty for the cause of regeneration in Greece, he had shown that that regeneration could be by no means a short or easy work, and now he had begun to report that the real work was hardly yet begun, nay, that it seemed almost further off than ever. Quote, 
Of the Greeks, he wrote, I can't say much good hitherto, and I do not like to speak ill of them, though they do of one another. End quote. It was chiefly at Byron's instigation that the first Greek loan was contracted in London early in 1824. Its proceeds, £300,000, were spent partly in unprofitable outlay upon ships, ammunition and the like, of which the people were in no position to make good use, but mostly in civil war and in pandering to the greed and vanity of members of the government and their subordinate officials. Quote, Fenariots and their doctors in medicine, says an eyewitness, who in the month of April, 1824, were clad in ragged coats and who lived on scanty rations, threw off that patriotic chrysalis before the summer was passed and emerged in all the splendour of brigand life, fluttering about in rich Albanian habiliments, refulgent with brilliant and unused arms and followed by diminutive pipe-bearers and tall henchmen. Even the scanty allowance made by the Greek government out of its newly acquired wealth for fighting purposes was for the most part squandered almost as frivolously. One general, who drew pay and rations for 700 soldiers, went to fight and die in Sfacteria at the head of 17 armed peasants. And this is only a glaring instance of peculations that were all but universal. That being the degradation to which the leaders of the Greek Revolution had sunk, it is not strange that its gains in previous years should have begun in 1824 to be followed by heavy losses. The Greek people, the peasants and burghers, were still patriots, though ill-trained and misdirected. They could defend their own homesteads with unsurpassed heroism and hold their own mountains and valleys with fierce persistency, but they were unfit for distant fighting, even when their chiefs consented to employ them in it. Sultan Mahmud, therefore, who had been profiting by the hard experience of former years, and whose strength had been steadily growing while the power of the insurgents had been rapidly weakening, entered on a new and successful policy. He left the Greeks to waste their energies in their own possessions, and resolved to recapture, one after another, the outposts and ill-protected islands. For this he took especial care in augmenting his navy, and besides developing his own resources, induced his powerful and turbulent vassal, Muhammad Ali the Pasha of Egypt, to equip a formidable fleet and entrust it to his son Ibrahim, on whom he conferred the title of Vizier of the Maria. Even without the aid, Mahmud was able to do much in furtherance of his purpose. The island of Karkos was easily recovered, and full vengeance was wreaked on its Greek inhabitants on the 20th of June. Soon afterwards, Sara was seized and punished yet more hardly. On the 19th of July, Ibrahim left Alexandria with a naval force which swept the southern seas of Greek pirates or privateers. On the 1st of September, he effected a junction with the Turkish fleet at Budron, their united strength comprised 46 ships, frigates, and corvettes, and about 300 transports, large and small. The Greek fleet, between 70 and 80 sail, would have been strong enough to withstand it under any sort of good management. But good management was wanting, and the crews were quite beyond the control of their masters. The result was that in a series of small battles, during the autumn of 1824, the Mohammedans were generally successful, and their enemies found themselves at the close of the year, terribly discomfited, the little organisation previously existing was destroyed, and the revolutionists felt that they had no prospect of advantageously carrying on their strife at sea without assistance and guidance that could not be looked for among themselves. Their troubles were increased in the following year. In February and March 1825, Ibrahim landed a formidable army in the Maria and began a course of operations in which the land forces and the fleet 
combined to dispossess the Greeks of their chief strongholds. The strongly fortified island of Factaria, the portal of Navarino and Silos, was taken on the 8th of May. Silos capitulated on the 11th, and Navarino on the 21st of the same month. Other citadels, one after another, were surrendered, and Ibrahim and his army spent the summer in scouring the Maria and punishing its inhabitants with the utmost severity for the lawless brigandage and the devoted patriotism of which they had been guilty during the past four years. The result was altogether disheartening to the Greeks. They saw that their condition was indeed desperate. George Kondoriotis, a Hydriot merchant, an Albanian who could not speak Greek, and who was alike unable to govern himself or others, had, in June 1824, been named President of the Republic, and since then the rival interests of the primates, the priests, and the military leaders had been steadily causing the decay of all that was left of patriotism and increase of the selfishness that had so long been rampant. There was one consequence of this degradation, however, which promised to be very beneficial, seeing that their cause was being rapidly weakened and their hard-fought battle for liberty was in danger of speedy and ignominious reversal by their own divisions, by the stealthy encroachments of the Ottomans in the north, and by the more energetic advances of the Egyptians in the south, the Greeks resolved to abandon some of their jealousies and greeds, to look for a saviour from without, and, on his coming, to try and submit themselves honestly and heartily to his leadership. The issue of that resolution was the following letter, written by Mavrocordatos, then secretary of the National Assembly. Milord, tandis que vos rares talents étaient consacrés à procurer le bonheur d'un pays séparé par un espace immense de la Grèce, celle-ci ne voyait pas sans admiration, sans intérêt, sans une espèce de jalousie secrète même, les succès brillants qui ont toujours couronné vos nobles efforts et rendu à l'indépendance un des plus beaux des plus riches pays du monde votre retour en angleterre a excité la plus vive joie dans le cœur du citoyen grec et de ses représentants par l'espoir flatteur qu'il commence à concevoir que celui qui s'est si noblement dédié à procurer le bonheur d'une nation ne refusera pas d'en faire autant pour celui d'une autre qu'il ne lui offre pas une carrière moins brillante et moins digne de lui et par son nom historique et par ses malheurs passés et par ses efforts actuels pour reconquérir sa liberté et son indépendance les mères qui rappellent les victoires des thémistoclès et des timons ne seront pas un théâtre indifférent pour celui qui sait apprécier les grands hommes et un des premiers amiraux de notre siècle ne verra qu'avec plaisir qu'il est appelé à renouveler les beaux jours de salamine et de mical à la tête des miaoulis des sachetouris et des canaries c'est avec la plus grande satisfaction, milord, que je me vois chargé de faire, au nom du gouvernement, à votre seigneurie, la proposition du commandement général des forces navales de la Grèce. Si votre seigneurie est disposée à l'accepter, messieurs les députés du gouvernement grec à Londres ont toute l'autorisation et les instructions nécessaires pour combiner avec elle sur les moyens à mettre à sa disposition, afin d'utiliser le plus tôt possible votre noble décision et accélérer l'heureux moment que la Grèce reconnaissante et enthousiasmée vous verra combattre pour la cause de sa liberté. Je profite de cette occasion pour prier votre seigneurie de vouloir bien agréer l'assurance de mon respect et de la plus haute estime avec laquelle j'ai l'honneur d'être, milord, de votre seigneurie, le très humble et très obéissant serviteur. A. Mavrocordatos, secrétaire général d'État. Naples de Romanie, le 20 août, 1er septembre 1825.
à sa seigneurie le très honorable lord cochrane à londres End of chapter 13. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.